Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Brainwaves from our 2018 programme. To The Guardian, David Eagleman is a little bit of a genius. To The Times, he's the hottest thing in neuroscience. He's an adjunct professor at Stanford University, director of the Centre of Science and Law, co-founder of Neosensory, a brainy outfit which creates novel sensory experiences, and the New York Times best-selling author of non-fiction titles Incognito, The Brain and The Runaway Species. He has also presented a groundbreaking BBC series on the brain and written the short fiction collection Sum. The very busy Eagleman speaks with Toby Manhire on the contents of our heads and just what makes us human. This session was supported by the Creative Thinking Project of the University of Auckland. We hope you enjoy listening. No mai haere mai, and welcome to Sunday morning at the Auckland Writers' Festival. My name is Toby Manhai, and it's a great pleasure to introduce today David Eagleman. David is a bit of a freak, if I'm honest. <laughs> he's, he's a neuroscientist, a broadcaster, an entrepreneur, an academic, a TED talker, and he's a real writer, too. He's, a, he's an annoyingly good writer. Um, and he's got books, some of them here. Um, uh, there's the bestseller Incognito, Secret Lives of the Brain. Most recently, uh, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. And the book um, that those of you have, who have read will, will not be able to forget, which was Some, 40 Tales of the Afterlives, which is a work of fiction. With the first, first book you published, I think. Yeah, that's right, it's yeah. literary fiction. How many yeah. have you written in total? Seven total. It's a lot of books. It's kind of a mystery how he manages to combine all these things and the university is on I think he may have cloned himself and there may be several, several David Eaglemans. At this very moment, probably another David Eagleman is giving a talk at a writer's festival in um, Bucharest. Um, <laughs> this David Eagleman will be signing copies of these books um, outside after the session. So um, go and grab one or two or three and um, hit them up get them signed. A big thank you to the Creative Thinking Project at the University of Auckland for their support, without which David's visit wouldn't be possible. Welcome, David. Thanks for coming. Thanks, um, Toby. It's great to be here. It's impossible to try and cover anything like any, all, all the territory that you do in, in your books and in your work. Um, so we're going to leave a good bit of time uh, at the end for questions. Um, but I want to start with the most pressing question that faces us today which is, is it Yanni or Laurel? It's a good question. Um, yeah, so you guys probably know about this auditory equivalent of the dress illusion that's recently out. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> the, the key is that particular audio file, which you can hear either way, it's, it's low quality, which allows your brain to bring its interpretation to it. So, so much of our visual world is this way, in our auditory world and so on, we see what we're expecting to see, and the brain fills in the gaps. I'll just mention one thing on this, which is the, uh, the visual cortex, which is at the back of your head, that's essentially running its own show with its own internal activity, and that is merely modulated by a little bit of data that dribbles in through the eyeballs. And if you actually count the fibers going in, it's about 5% of the input to the visual cortex is coming from here, which means 
all the rest is internal. And of course, you can have full, rich visual experience uh, with your eyes closed. That's what happens when you dream every night. Your eyes are closed and you're having full, rich experience. So um, this is an example of the way we bring our interpretation, our expectations to bear on a little bit of data, and that's what's happening with the Annie and Laurel. Mm. And you've done some really interesting work recently exploring ways of hearing and ways of seeing, but particularly hearing is what you're, it's sort of similar to that in, in as far as what you're saying with the way you process information. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, essentially something I've been obsessed with for a while is that the brain, of course, is locked in silence and darkness inside the skull. So um, it's putting together its whole picture of your subjective world just based on uh, electrochemical spikes, little uh, blips of activity in brain cells that are running around. Um, but, of course, colors don't exist and things like that. And, you know, your seeing of us is happening inside of your head. Even though it feels like we're out here, it's actually all happening in there. So it's a very weird uh, world that we have. Uh, the part I've been obsessed with is that um, somehow your brain is able to take whatever data streams are coming in and make something out of it, make an internal objective experience. So I got very interested in this idea of sensory substitution, which is can you feed data into the brain via unusual sorts of senses? So one of the things we've done is we built a vest covered in vibratory motors, and we can cure deafness that way. So people who are deaf, we capture sound and turn it into patterns of vibration, and they can come to understand what is being said in the auditory world based on feeling it on their skin. Why? Because that's getting up to their brain, just the way that your inner ear breaks things into frequencies and ships that off to the brain. Uh, we've also made a wristband now that's doing the same thing. It's just slightly lower resolution than the vest, but it um, captures sound. So deaf people can hear, you know, a dog barking or someone talking or someone slamming the door or a smoke detector, things like that. You say hear. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, an, it's a hard thing to get, to get your head around, but is, yeah. is the experience that they might hear, I mean, if, 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 if this works, and I know you're still kind of working on it, it's still going, but is it going to be as rich as the experience of hearing a dog bark that I, I'm lucky enough to be able to hear through my ears, through a wrist? It's a very interesting, so by the way, we've tested 432 people already, uh -huh. so we're, we're well into this. I don't know if we're going to ever be able to answer that yeah. in the same way that we don't know if my experience of hearing what I call hearing is the same as yours. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, everybody's thought of this sometime late at night, maybe at a, you know, a drunken Saturday night. You think about, do I see red the same way you see red? Um, and the answer is we don't have any real reason to think so. Um, yeah, it's just your brain's internal construction. Given a particular wavelength of light, your brain assigns this label to it, essentially, but we might not see that the same way. Anyway, this is something I've been thinking a lot about is, will we ever know if somebody, you know, wears the wristband for a year and says, look, I'm, I'm hearing with it, w will we know if it's the same experience or not? No way to know. Um, I mean, it reminds me of something that's in the documentary that you made and also the book that goes with it of the, the man who who was, became blind and had surgically had his, his corneas, corneas replaced, yeah. um, and, and his experience, can you explain his experience, which kind of links into this, when suddenly he could see again? Yeah, exactly. So, so Mike May became blind at the age of eight with the chemical explosion that scarred his corneas. So he spent his life as a blind man, very successful, became actually the world's best blind downhill skier. 
and became a successful businessman and did all kinds of great things. But when he was in his young 40s, he heard about a surgery where he could get the corneas essentially taken off and replaced so that light would pass through there again. So he got the surgery, and uh, there was a photographer on site when he got the bandages taken off, and he had his two sons there so that he'd be able to see his sons for the first time. And the photograph is sort of a, a pained, awkward look on his face because he, although there was light now passing through his corneas and hitting his retinas and going all the way back to his visual cortex, he wasn't seeing. His brain had to figure out what all this barrage of photons meant. And this is something we do as babies, and of course we don't remember it. You know, when you look at a newborn and the newborn looks at your face and you think, oh, how cute, she's looking at me, but she's not really seeing you in any way because her brain is still trying to figure out how to make sense of this data, how to make a, an internal subjective experience of it. So anyway, Mike had to learn, and he's still learning, really, how to see again. Just as an mm -hmm. example, um, he knew from decades of being a blind person that when you walk down a hallway, the, hall, the, the, the walls are always at the same distance, the whole way down the hallway. But when you look at the hallway, the walls go like that. And so he couldn't quite figure out how to make a correlation there. Um, one of the images you use um, when talking about this sort of area is the uh, Mr. Potato Head model, um, which is the idea that you plug things in. And can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's not just necessarily sensors that we might replace that, we, that people have lost, but it could be go further than that. Yeah. Exactly right. So what I've proposed is this Mr. Potato Head model of evolution, which is you just plug these things in and you're good to go. The brain figures out what to do with them. In other words, all these sensory organs that we know and love, like our eyes and our ears and our mouth, our fingertips and so on, these are just plug and play devices to the brain. This is my hypothesis on it. Um, what I think just from an evolutionary point of view is that Mother Nature figured out how to build the principles of, of, of brain operation, and then she's free to mess around with the genetics to try all kinds of different peripheral devices. So for example, when you look across the animal kingdom, you find all kinds of weird peripherals. So snakes have heat pits with which they pick up infrared. Um, you know, the black ghost knifefish has electroreceptors with which it picks up perturbations in electrical fields. Uh, the star-nosed mole has this nose with 22 fingers on it with which it feels out the, the three-dimensional patterns of its tunnels. Um, birds and insects and cows all pick up on the magnetic field of the Earth and navigate that way. And so there's lots of different things that you can plug into this potato head model. And so one of the things I'm very interested in is, you know, not only can we just replace a sense for, let's say, somebody who's deaf, we're also working on blindness, but can we, can we actually do sensory addition and add new senses, um, you know, so for example, if I plug in uh, a real-time data stream of stock market data, will you be able to feel the economic, plan the economic movements of the planet? Or if I feed in Twitter data, will you be plugged into the consciousness of thousands of people all at the same time? That sort of thing. So we're experimenting with that now, and over the next couple of years, we're going to know a lot about, about what we're able to do, whether we can add a sixth sense, and then, you know, seventh and eighth, we don't really know what the limits are. And that, like lots of things like this, is very cool and also very terrifying in lots of ways. The idea that you can just kind of, you know, casually plug some extra stuff into your, almost directly into your brain, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, all of these things carry with them ethical questions. Yeah, I mean, one of the important things in science is to always make sure that we're not moving ahead of our moral compass. So, um, so I, I've thought, very carefully about this issue. It's not clear to me what the ethical um, problems are with this, but it's something that I'm always keeping my eye on. 
about that is, you know, if I, if I want to experience something more directly, I mean, there's a sense in which we do that already. When I pick up a book on the history of Rome, I'm suddenly, you know, getting lots of data on that into my brain. Or if I, um, you know, pick up my cell phone and I look through Twitter, I'm catching thousands of people's opinions on stuff just slightly more slowly. And so the question is, if I have a more direct feed, is there something ethically wrong with it? I don't think so at this point. Um, what about if, the, depending on who has control of that, if there's some kind of proprietorial element involved in ownership? So, well, you know. the, the key is it's just a, um, you know, one thing we've made sure is that it is not hackable, and you choose your own feed that's going in there. Yeah. So it's exactly like saying, well, what if somebody forced a cell phone in front of your face? It's, you know, it's your cell phone. You get to choose what you're taking in. It's just a way of uh, doing a faster drip feed. Um, brains as a subject... I mean, they're, they're, I mean it's, it's so vastly different to someone who's studying like an, the other organs of the body in a way because they're, they're, they're fascinating and very difficult, but you, you're, you immediately kind of almost launch into, a, into, into psychology, into almost metaphysical territory, right? Mm. Is that part of what attracted you to the subject of brains? Yes, actually. As an undergraduate, I was taking a lot of philosophy courses and, um, and my very last semester of college is when I discovered neuroscience. And suddenly I thought, wow, this can really unlock a lot of these conundrums that we get ourselves into hmm. in philosophy and psychology, things like that. If we understood the perceptual machinery by which we're viewing the world, if we understood what is happening. And, you know, the main thing about the brain that's so striking is um, how it can change and how when people get even very tiny damage to their brain because of a stroke or a tumor or traumatic brain injury, things like that, that can change you entirely. That can change your decision making or your risk aversion or your capacity to name furry animals or understand music or see colors or a hundred other things that we see every day. And this is, this is how we know that this is the densest representation of who you are, the you that your friends know and love and so on, um, it's all right there in those three pounds. Now, there is a little, you know, I mean, obviously your brain interacts with your body and stuff, but this is the dense representation because if you lose a little bit of your pinky or something, you're sad about that, but you're no different as a person. But if you lose an equivalently sized chunk of brain tissue, you're an entirely different person. You talk about um, uh, a kind of idea of the inner space or the inner cosmos, you know, which kind of, as opposed to the, the, the universe out there. Can you sort of explain what you mean by that? Um, yeah, I mean, I always, talk, actually, so when I went to PBS and BBC to pitch my television show on yeah. the brain, I said, this is like cosmos, but for the inner cosmos, because, you know, it's essentially, uh, um, my analogy on this is that um, it, it's sort of like what happened with, Galil uh, uh, with um, uh, Galileo. Who, who discovered the moons of Jupiter and said, hey, I think we're not at the center of the orbits because there are other things orbiting other things. And of course, he got thrown in prison and so on. Um, but what happened was, you know, the, the Catholic Church didn't love this idea that we're not at the center of things, but in the intervening 500 years, we've discovered so much about the size of the cosmos. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Anyway, I think an analogous thing is happening in neuroscience, which is that we tend to feel like okay, well, I sort of know who I am and what I'm about and so on, but the deeper we sail into the inner cosmos, the more mysteries we're, um, we're confronting about the size of this. You know, you've got almost 100 billion neurons. These are the brain cells that are doing the action in your brain. 
100 billion of these. Each one is as complicated as the city of Auckland. Every one of these has the entire human genome in it. It's trafficking millions of proteins. Each one is connected to about 10,000 of its neighbors. So you're talking about 1,000 trillion connections. It's the kind of thing that totally bankrupts our language. We have no way of even talking about this stuff, so we have to try to invent new strains of mathematics and computation to even try to scratch the surface of this. So even though at our giant levels of space and time, we sort of feel like, oh yeah, I know what's going on. In fact, it's so deep in there that there's no end that we're seeing into, the, uh, into that inner cosmos there. Is there a thing, <clears throat> is there a kind of a next big thing that we might discover? Maybe it's an impossible question to, to answer because if you knew it, you'd do it. But no, I do know the answer <laughs> about the next the big thing. The next big thing to discover is the neural code. So, so what, what's weird is we look at uh, neurons and they're all going pop, 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 They're all spiking. It's essentially zeros and ones. Mm. And um, we don't know the language. We don't like, so it's easy in the peripheral nervous system, like you know, with your arms or something, um, you know, the, the harder I press, brrr, the more spikes I get, or the harder I contract, brrr, the more spikes I'm getting sending out. So that's cool, but when it comes to understanding thought and reminiscence and future planning and simulations of futures, and what, we have no idea how to read the language. So anywhere you look in the brain, what people have traditionally done is they, they, do, they drill a little hole in the skull and they stick an electrode in, and anywhere you hit, you'll see neurons going pop, 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 pop. We don't know what the, the language is. Everyone's speaking the same alphabet of zeros and ones, but we don't know uh, how to read that. So that is the next big thing, and there's probably 20 Nobel Prizes waiting to be had there as people discover. And the problem is the technology, actually. This is the interesting relationship between science and, and technology. Um, is that what we need at this point are just better tools so uh -huh. that we can get that. Because what we have right now, you can do things like brain imaging where you, you can you know, measure big blobs of brain activity, or you can do electrodes and measure single neurons at a time. But what we don't know is the interesting bit about what happens when you get 100,000 or a million cells together. What, is the, what are they saying? So you can't yet capture that data? Is that we can't saying? capture it right now. Right. We don't have a technology to do okay. it. Okay. Okay. So that is the next big thing. Um, can we go through, uh, I want to ask you some, because some, we chatted the other day um, and I had a grave misconception, had a myth, and I want to ask you a few of these sort of, sort of FAQ brain things. You tell me whether they're true or false, because you see them around. We only use 10% of our brain. False. You're using your brain, every bit of it, all the time. Where did that come from? I think it's sticky because it gives you the sense that, ooh, I could unlock another 90% if I just do something, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's not true, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Um, in fact, let me just mention something. It was in 1953 that, that the first person ever thought to try EEG, electroencephalography, on, on a sleeping person. Uh -huh. And what they found is that the brain is just as active. It's screaming along when you're sleeping. And anywhere that you stick an electrode during neurosurgery or whatever, you know, it, ev everything is active all the time. Brain cells die and don't replenish over the course of your life. That is true. That is true. So um, you're, you're born with a fixed number of brain cells. Uh, those start making more and more connections between them by the time you're about two years old, that you've got the densest forest you'll ever have. And then after that, it's a matter of pruning. And then after that, yeah, brain cells die. Um, there's a controversial idea that you have a little trickle of new brain cells, but that's, um, yeah, that's still being debated in the literature. But even if it's true, it's just a very tiny trickle. Um, the bigger your brain, the more intelligent you are. 
Also, also false. Um, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that, I mean, you look at Andre the Giant, or you look at, you know, some Nobel laureate who's got a kind of tiny head or something, and it turns out, yeah, it's all about, it's all about the structure rather than just, just the size of it. You are, you are, people are either left-brained or right-brained. Also false. Um, it was thought for a little while that maybe there's sort of a really important difference between the left and right hemisphere, because the left hemisphere essentially takes care of language, and the right hemisphere, for example, is more about music. And, and it turns out that, it turns out the, the final punchline is that the left hemisphere is just more involved in fine motor movements. And it turns out that language is sort of a part of that, using very fine movements of the tongue and lips and so on. And the right half is more about sort of crude motor movements. But other than that, um, they're essentially, uh, you know, identical stamps of one another. And you can even, in extreme cases, you could remove half your brain and still have functioning brain. If you're a child. So there's a... Don't um, do it if you're over Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't try this at home. Um, uh, there's a very radical neurosurgery that is so surprising, but sometimes children will get something called Rasmussen's encephalitis, which is a, an epilepsy in one hemisphere of the brain. That's just, it's terrible. They have seizures every few minutes. Um, and so the surgery is to remove half the brain. And as long as you do that before the child is six years old, the child is fine. All the things that would have been in the other hemisphere just sort of rewire onto the remaining hemisphere. And the kids have, they have a slight limp on the other side of their body, but otherwise you would never know that they've been through a, a surgery like that. If you try it with an adult, they'll die. Just for the record, so don't try this at home. Okay, yes. Um, the, uh, yeah. But it, it just, it, it demonstrates the remarkable plasticity of the brain, especially the young brain. Mm. You talked um, before about measuring the sleeping brain and all the work it's doing. Um, consciousness is in the way you, just, you have a lovely way of describing it at some point of being like a stowaway on a ship. It's claiming credit for the whole engine of the ship or something. Yeah, something like exactly. That. It's a tiny, it's a tiny speck of a brain. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We uh, another analogy I use is that it's the broom closet in the mansion of the brain. So when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about the part of you that flickers to life when you wake up in the morning. That bit, your brain is doing all kinds of stuff. Essentially, most everything in your life, your decisions, your joys, your the things you want to do, all, all, all this is happening at an unconscious uh, level, and the consciousness is essentially the last guy on the ladder to get any information about what's going on. Um, and so you just think about, as an example, when, when you have an idea and you say, oh, I just thought of something. It wasn't really you, right? Because your brain's been thinking about that for weeks or months, consolidating information, trying things out, evaluating hypotheses. And at some point, it gets cooked enough and it gets served up to your conscious mind, and you say, oh, I'm a genius. But it wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly. So this is why, this is why um, I mentioned this in my other talk, but uh, you know, uh, Carl Jung said, in each of us there is another whom we do not know. Or as Pink Floyd put it, there's someone in my head, but it's not me. So. Um, and your other talk was about creativity and, and, and your most recent book, The Runaway Species. Um, yeah. Does that consciousness, is that one of the things that makes us a bit of a runaway species? You know, animals, are they conscious? I don't know. I mean, that's probably hard to say for sure. 
It is um, hard to say for sure. And the general hypothesis that most of us hold is that there's probably a gradation of consciousness. So, uh -huh. so my dog is conscious, but he's probably not thinking about the same things in future planning and evaluating what he's going to do next year and so on. Um, and then, you know, all the way down to a fruit fly or something, there may be something like consciousness, but it's sort of a lower resolution version of it. It's kind of why Gary Larson comics and Snoopy comics are funny in a way, aren't they? Because they ascribe a conscious yeah, brain right. to an animal that doesn't. Anyway, yeah, go on. That's right, that's right. Um, I think when it comes to creativity, it may not be so much about our consciousness, but instead what's happening under the hood, um, the argument in the book is that what is different about computers versus, let's say, the human brain is simply that, you know, you put a file into a computer and when you retrieve it later, it's exactly the same zeros and ones that you put in. And that's what we love about our computers. But with brains, they don't store anything that way. Everything that goes in gets mixed and mashed with other things. And so what we end up doing is bending, breaking, and blending everything that comes in and, and evaluating new versions of it. And this is what has made our species, we do this more than any other species by a long shot, and uh, this is what's made our species so extraordinary in terms of, um, you know, in terms of if you walk through a forest or something, every, every animal species is doing the same thing they've done a million years ago. If you're born as an alligator or a koala bear or whatever, you're really doing the same thing that your ancient ancestors did. Um, but humans have built, you know, theaters like this, and they have writers' festivals, and they build internets and cures to smallpox, and they get to the moon, and they launch Falcon Heavy rockets, and so on. So there's something really runaway about, about our species compared to all our cousins in the kingdom. We uh, in New Zealand, a, a live issue here at the moment being discussed on uh, politics shows on television this morning is a decision about whether to build a massive new prison um, and whether the new government will go ahead with that or not. You have thought a lot about, written a lot about, talked a lot about the relationship between criminal justice and the brain. And so I kind of, I think you call it neuro law sometimes. Yeah, but neuro law. What, what, what can study of the brain tell us about the way we do criminal justice? Um, there is a, an approach to the legal system that we have taken since ancient Greek times, which is that, you know, if you commit this crime, you get this punishment. Um, and that's still, I don't know New Zealand laws in particular, but in the United States, we still have mandated sentencing for most things, which is if you've done this, you get five years and that's it. But what we've learned in neuroscience is how different brains are. Uh, you know, brains, by the way, just even in general, even in this crowd, brains are as different as fingerprints. Every, if you look at, if you look at the faces in this crowd, there's as much difference on the inside with brains as there is on the outside with people's faces. So, um, it turns out that why people commit crime can be for very different reasons. So let's say I'm a judge and there's a bunch of people in front of the bench who've all committed exactly the same crime. This guy might have done it because he has schizophrenia. This guy over here is a sociopath, totally different issue. This guy over here is tweaked out on drugs and so on. There's, there's lots of different reasons why people commit crimes. And this doesn't, the whole idea of neural law is not to let anybody off the hook. It's not to say, oh, everyone gets to go. But instead to say, how can we root people through the system in a more refined manner where we do individualized sentencing and more important rehabilitation where we try to get people the help they need. Because if you take somebody, let's say with schizophrenia, and you put them in jail and have them break rocks in the hot summer sun, it's not gonna cure their schizophrenia, it's not gonna help anything. And so the question is, how can we take everything that we know in neuroscience and, and help build a more refined legal system, and one that is, by the way, much less expensive to run. And what we've had is this exact problem in the United States for a long time, 
which is this increasing building of, of prison systems. Um, and what we did is move towards private prison systems where we said, wow, we can't, the government can't even keep up with building enough prisons, so we're now going to get private uh, companies to come in and build them. And um, uh, the fact is that there's a, a much better thing that can be done there, and where that happens in the United States is when people run out of money to build new prisons, when they say, wow, our prisons are completely packed, we need to build a new one, but we just can't afford it at this point. Then that's when they get smart, and they say, okay, look, let's build a separate uh, court system that just deals with mental health issues. And, and if you get rooted into that court system, yeah, thanks, it's so important, thank you. And they say, if you go into that court system, there's judges and juries with you know, specialization and understanding of mental health issues. Let's make a specialized drug court, where if you're a drug addict, you go in here, and we work on methods of rehabilitation instead of imagining that locking you up is going to cure you of your drug addiction. Let's make a specialized prostitution court, because the women who do prostitution, that's a completely different kind of crime. And the women who are driven to that tend to be a very different um, you know, type of person than the people who are you know, breaking into houses and stealing stuff and so on. So anyway, specialized courts is a very simple and easy way that um, jurisdictions can, can make improvements straight away. And are people listening, are policymakers listening to those ideas? I, I, I think it is catching on in part because of what I mentioned, which is often jurisdictions start running out of money and then they have to listen to those ideas whether or not they want to. Um, and, you know, I and many of my colleagues have been going around speaking to judges and court systems all around the nation trying to get people to, uh, to hear this message. So it's become at least part of the, part of the drinking water where everyone knows that this is a, a possibility, an option. And uh, also I've been writing lots of papers on, you know, everything we know in neuroscience about drug rehabilitation. Um, obviously we know the people who end up in prison for drugs, it's not the big drug cartel bosses. The, the typical person who ends up there are the people who are caught with two ounces of marijuana or cocaine or something like that. Um, and it's just not the right place to put them. The, the main problem is that prison is provably uh, a revolving door. So once you put someone in there, you break their social circles, you break their employment opportunities, you give them new social circles, new employment opportunities, and so people end up coming back around to prison. And so it's, it's such a tragedy to take someone who's caught with a little bit of drugs and incarcerate them. You talk um, uh, in incognito, I think, about some of the incredible behavioral changes that can happen in people who suffer brain damage of some sort. Yeah. And I mean, that, that sort of, that, that feeds into this a bit too, that there are, it's, I mean, this question of fault is an interesting one, but you know, people can do some appalling things. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you an example of that. Um, you know, here's what I would say. There's this spectrum that we have where at one end of the spectrum, we see very clearly that something's gone wrong with something's, someone's brain and we know what it is and often we can fix it. And there's all these things where it becomes harder and harder to see all the way down to the common criminal who's never going to get a brain scan, unfortunately. Hmm. And so what we tend to do as a society is we say, okay, well, we're going to draw this line here. And we're going to say, oh, you poor guy, you got a brain tumor. I would feel so sorry for you. We'll try to help you, blah, blah, And over on this side of the line, we say, we're going to punish you and make you hurt. And we're going to, you know, uh, incarcerate you. And, 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 and the problem with that is that this line keeps moving every year as we build new technologies, right? As we get better and better brain imaging technologies, and over the next decades, we're going to have new diseases that we discover, genetic things, you know, diseases of the circuitry and so on, and we'll be able to do things about that. And so that line keeps moving. And so it cannot be a just system 
that says, all right, well, if you're on this side of the line, we'll say it's not your fault. On this side of the line, we say it is your fault. So it turns out that culpability might not be the important question for us to be asking in the first place. Instead, it's what do we do from here? What are the things we have available to help somebody with, with the problem? And often the answer will be, well, we can't do anything yet, and that's fine. And, and so in that case, we may still incarcerate people exactly as we always have. But there's this whole area here where we can do things. I'll just give an example of the kind of thing you asked. Yeah. Um, some of you may remember this happened 50 years ago in the United States, but this uh, guy named Charles Whitman climbed up to the top of the tower at the University of Texas at Austin. And, and opened fire at uh, people below, randomly killed civilians, killed the people that came to help them, killed the ambulance drivers, killed anybody who was down there. Um, and in total, he uh, killed 16 people and wounded 39 others in what was America's first mass shooting. And um, the Austin police got to the top of the tower finally and killed him, and they wanted to know what everyone wanted to know, which is, who is this guy? What just happened here? And um, they figured out who he was. They went back to his house. They realized that he had killed his wife and his mother-in-law the night before. And then he had sat down as typewriter and typed out a suicide note. And what they discovered is that he said that he was, he was very high IQ. And he said, look, something inside of me has been changing for the last year. And I have been prone to massive anger and aggression. And I don't know what's wrong. And he said, when this is all over, I want an autopsy to be performed. And that's what happened. They, they did an autopsy on his brain, and they discovered they had a small brain tumor that was pressing on a part of his brain called the amygdala, which is involved in fear and aggression. And, um, and it turns out this was in the year, this was in 1966, and so there was nothing, there was no brain scan, there's nothing that could have been done anyway. But the thing is that it strains our notions about justice because... Whitman didn't choose to have a tumor. It wasn't what he wanted. He was very articulate. He kept a diary for the whole year before and talked about his descent into this anger and, and madness. And um, um, so we see cases like that where now it would be easy to find the tumor and do an operation. So we find there are so many criminal justice cases now where somebody has a brain tumor. I'll just, I'll just mention one more very quickly, which is um, recently a guy who became a pedophile. He, started, he developed an interest in pedophilia. Um, he started collecting child pornography. He, he, he then tried to make a move on his prepubescent stepdaughter, and his wife had him arrested. So he was in prison, and he was having terrible headaches. So they finally took him to get a, a brain scan, and it turned out he had a massive frontal lobe tumor. So they did an emergency neurosurgery on him, took out the tumor. His sexual behavior returned completely to normal. He had no interest in, in pedophilia again. And so his wife took him back. The judge let him go. About six months later, he started developing an interest in pedophilia again. So his wife took him back to the doctors. It turns out they had missed a part of the tumor. It was regrowing. They resected it a second time, and his behavior returned to normal a second time. So again, he didn't choose to have the tumor. This is just one of these things in our modern biological world that we now have to understand and deal with and figure out where we can help instead of imagining that everyone deserves the exact same punishment. But I mean, if you read that through to its end, in a way you end up losing any sense of free will at all, potentially. You know, I mean, the, that, that whole free will question is, I guess, baked into the way we see uh, crime and punishment, but also an important part of what yeah. we are as humans. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, I can tell you this. Uh, a lot of neuroscientists think we probably don't have free will. The reason is 
when you look at the brain, it's this very complicated system, but fundamentally it's cells driving other cells and everything is following rules to lowest potential energy. And so it seems like it's a machine. It's a very massive, incredibly complicated machine, but it's not clear where you, you know, put a puff of deific breath into it and get something that's not the machine in there. And so, um, so a lot of scientists feel that. I, you know, just want to keep my bets open on that, just in the sense that our science is still quite young. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I mean, maybe we don't have free will. Maybe there's something else that we don't yet understand. But, um, but in either case, it still could be, even, even if we did have free will, which I'm not saying we do, we don't understand how that would work if we did, but, but even if we do have that, it could be that if you grow a big tumor, that that interferes with it, making mm. your will um, change. And we, we, of course, know that, you know, when you drink some alcohol or take drugs or you get a brain tumor or a stroke, it, you know, changes who you are fundamentally. One of the um, things that you have to do all the time um, is find metaphors to explain this incredibly complex thing yeah. that's in our heads. And one of the things that you use, other people use sometimes more than you, is the computer, because it's, in a way, it's the most immediately available. You know, we talk about <coughs> data and algorithms and all those sorts of words. Is, the, is a computer, how, how, is it a satisfactory metaphor for, for the brain? It, great question. It's not a satisfactory metaphor. Um, probably the notion of things like algorithms might be a pretty good one, but thinking about the digital computer with the brain is not a good metaphor. And I mentioned before, just by way of example, this thing about how we think about memory in, the, in, in a computer where you stick mm. the zeros and ones in, you get them back. But memory, it's such a shame that we use the same word for both concepts, because it's really uh, semantically strained that way. It's, um, That's the metaphor working both ways, isn't it? Because the, the, there we're applying the metaphor to the computer of our memory, and then we're trying to use it back the other way. Very good. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And you know, but our memory is so different than a computer, so fundamentally. Mm. Um, our memory, first of all, is very leaky, but more importantly, everything that goes in gets mashed together with other things that we already know or believe we know. And, um, you know, and if you hear information, if I say, hey, you know that dinner that you had last year? Did you know that they were about to get divorced? And you say, oh, and then, and then you remember the dinner differently than, you, oh, yeah, I saw they gave funny looks and so on. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, uh, yeah, it's, um, memory is a myth-making machine, and we're constantly reinventing our past to keep it consistent with who we think we are. Um, the, the computer metaphor um, is also probably not able to capture something about the way, <coughs> excuse me, the way the brain changes. It's sort of, it's constantly That's right. editing itself in a way. That's right. Yeah, this is actually my next book called Live Wired, which will come out next year. It's about brain plasticity because I've been so fascinated with the way that this is essentially a, a live electrical fabric that's constantly reconfiguring itself. I mean, every moment of your life. I mean, so if there's anything I said that sort of struck you as something interesting, that, and you remember it later, and you say to your friend a week from now, oh, you know, I once heard blah, 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 that means that there's been a change in your brain. That's what memory is. If you're able to retrieve that my name is David, that means that there was a physical change in the structure of your brain, and that's what allows you to pull that out uh, later. So it is constantly reconfiguring itself. We don't feel that way. We feel like, oh yeah, I'm sort of the same person I was when I was 20 and 10 and so on. But in fact, you're completely different as a person. And if, you're, you know, if your 10-year-old self walked onto stage right now, you'd probably have more in common with your colleagues than you would with your 10-year-old self. Um, yeah, so anyway. Can you see that? How do you, how do you 
measure that in a laboratory, that change? Yeah, so there are lots of experiments on brain plasticity where you can measure things at the, at the big level with brain imaging or at the small level with looking at synaptic, uh, at changes between, uh, of the connections between cells. Mm. But even at the big level, for example, if you, at whatever age, <clears throat> if you take up something new like juggling, we can measure changes in the structure of your brain after six weeks. I mean, very obvious uh, changes in the structure of your brain. Um, or if you um, are a piano player versus a violinist, I can tell just by looking at your brain in a brain scan immediately which one you are. Because if you're a violinist, there's only one finger that, there's only one hand that's doing a lot of the detailed work. And so your motor cortex on the other side will sort of get bigger as a result. If you're a pianist and both your fingers are doing a lot of work, then both your motor cortexes will get bigger on both sides. I mean, this is stuff that you can just by looking at your brain actually read out something about a person's life that way. I wanted to ask you, um, sort of going back to some, in a way, the, the, the book of the sort of 40 kind of speculations on what might happen after death. I mean, that's a very spiritual book, and there's a sort of spiritual element that comes through, I mean, you're writing books about imagination and creativity as well. And I, <clears throat> I wondered what, what your view was of the new atheists and that strand of scientific thinking or scientists making the argument, Dawkins and co. Um, about an almost kind of, uh, almost sometimes aggressive atheism. I mean, I think you've had a run-in with Sam Harris about this, maybe. Yeah, we're friends now, it turns out. But, You're friends. But yeah, the, um, here's my view on it. It's yeah. that, um, so, so I, I should clarify, some isn't so much a spiritual book. It, it, is, it is just literary fiction. And the reason I chose Afterlives as the topic is because it's such a great stage upon which to examine what is important to us. Mm. But what happened is this led me into a whole, uh, you know, discussion with Sam and, and Dawkins and so on about, um, about these issues. And my general feeling is that we know way too much to commit to any particular religious story. I mean, the, the place where we are as a species now in 2018, we have so much scientific knowledge that we're sitting on top of that it's very difficult to say, oh, yeah, we think the biblical account of creation or the age of the earth or something is correct. It's completely impossible to believe that anymore. Um, the flip side is that we can't pretend like we have the whole thing figured out because we're just surrounded by mysteries, um, you know, the, the things that we're not even aware of that we're not aware of, but also the things that we know we don't know. I mean, we Sound don't... like Donald Rumsfeld there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, no, but these are the known unknowns. Yeah, that's only, yeah, yeah but he talks about the unknown unknowns. Yeah, well, I, I don't remember which one. Yes. No, he knows that he's about all the unknowns. Yes, yeah. Yes. So I'm talking about all the unknowns. But, you know, things like dark matter and dark energy, uh, you know, how quantum mechanics is going to fit with uh, relativity, uh, how the brain works, how, what the neural code is, how consciousness operates, why you have consciousness when you put together 100 billion pieces and parts. I mean, there's so many things that we don't even know the answer to now that we can't pretend like, oh, we've got the whole thing settled. So, um, for myself, I have ended up somewhere in the middle between any sort of, you know, religion that's passed down to us, uh, you know, through revelation and tradition and so on, and, and the strictest version of atheism where we sort of pretend we've got it all figured out. I, so I call myself a possibilian, and that is, <laughs> the, the job is to figure out the structure of the possibility space. What, are, what does that look like? So the, 
Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition is one point in that space. Yeah, possible that there's something right about that. You know, Eastern tradition, the fact that we, you know, the idea that we die and that's the end of that. And, so, and, you know, there's all these things about what the heck we're doing here. The idea that's very popular in Silicon Valley, that this all might be a simulation anyway yeah. by a more advanced civilization. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. Anyway, that's the point of the possibility space. So, so we use the tools of science to carve away parts of that, to figure out, okay, look, that's probably not the case, blah, blah, blah. And we can open up new parts of that possibility space, things that we hadn't thought of previously. And, and that's what is interesting to me, is not fighting and dying for a particular story, a particular version, but instead trying to figure out the structure of space. And that, to my mind, is the most scientific approach that one can take uh, to this, instead of pretending, instead of, you know, imagining uh, certainty about a story. Um, we're going to throw to questions uh, shortly, so um, get them ready, and there'll be mics that will appear in the aisles um, downstairs and upstairs. There. They're already there. Um, but I just want to pick, pick up on that point, and if you could clarify whether or not we live in a simulation, that'd be useful to know. Um, the, the, the line, I mean, like Elon Musk has been talking about it as one of the Silicon Valley people, and, and it's quite a compelling argument, the part of it that goes the pace at which our technology is improving, you know, that we've gone from even in, you know, our lifetimes in, in video games and in VR and in a, and artificial intelligence. If that continues and continues at the same rate of accelerating, that we will be in a position where at some point we'll be able to create synthesized universes, goes the argument, surely. And if we can do that, then surely that must have, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's the logic runs that it must have happened already, and therefore that's what we are in some form or another. Yeah, that's totally right. And by the way, this is not even a new argument in the sense that Descartes asked this question of how would I know if I am a brain in a vat being stimulated mm. by scientists so that I think I'm in a theater in Auckland and we're sitting down and, and so on. Um, so this is an old question. And by the way, Descartes concluded that he, there is no way to know. Um, and this is what led to his very famous statement, which was actually a very a very terrific leap in philosophy where he said, look, there's some, there's some I that's asking the question and therefore I exist. I think therefore I am. Je pense donc je suis. So he, he um, you know, anyway, this idea that we're in a simulation is not new. And, and exactly as you said, I mean, it, it could be that in 100 years from now, we are already at that level where we can run terrific simulations. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be of an entire universe. It just has to be of, for example, this room that you're in, mm. and the outside convention center might not exist right now in the simulation. It's only when you step out the door that it all comes together. <laughs> and you know, when you go home, there's your apartment or your house. So anyway, that's the idea. Um, and it's the, you know, it's the Truman Show or the Matrix, all those things play with those. Exactly things. right. But can you confirm either way? What, what's your... Uh, not that we've... <laughs> Not that we've thought of, my, my neuroscience advisor said, you know, what if you did something like ran around in a circle a whole lot to try to burn out the transistors and like something weird happens when you do that. Um, so he's still running around in a circle, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Or he's a brain in a vat, one or the other. <laughs> thank you very much for being thank here. You, or Toby. not being here, who knows, either way, it's good. Great, thank you. <laughs> yes. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.